So this morning, we're actually going to start, as we do each Ordinance Sunday, with our first song. So if you would stand with us this morning, we're going to go ahead and sing Living Waters together. You may be seated. 
Today is our periodic observance of the Lord's Table, also known as Communion. And Communion is one of two ordinances that Christ gave to his church, the other being baptism. Now, an ordinance is a ceremony. It's a a rite, R-I-T-E, that we observe in obedience to what Christ has commanded. There are some things that we all need to know about the ordinances. The first is that they do not serve in any way to get us to heaven. In fact, as we'll see, the participants in these are those who are going to heaven. We do not take part as a means to get there. We also need to know that these ordinances are memorials. They are symbols that remind us of the work of Jesus Christ. So who should participate in them? Well, the Bible teaches it's for those who have trusted Christ as Savior. If you don't know what that means, then I'd love to explain it to you at a time of your convenience. So see me afterward or contact me this week. We'll set a time to get together. In the meantime, we're delighted that you're our guest, and we encourage you to observe what happens today. Now, for those who have trusted Christ as Savior, the Bible gives one other requirement, and that is that we confess sin before we partake of the Lord's table. A bit later, we're going to take time to go to the Lord and confess sin. Now, it may be that we have some sin that we refuse to give up. Or that there is something the Lord has told us to do in his word that we're simply unwilling to obey. So in either case, we should take that to the Lord, confess it, and he promises to forgive. Now, one matter that's too often overlooked as it relates to our worship on any Lord's Day, not just on Ordinance Sunday, is the matter of unresolved personal conflict. Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is saying that if there's an issue between us and a brother or sister, we should take care of that before we participate in worship, including in communion. Now, if you're aware of Jesus' instructions and you have a conflict you're just refusing to handle, handle, then I would encourage you not to participate and to take care of that issue today. But if you've tried to reconcile and the other party refuses, you're released from any biblical obligation. Now, perhaps Jesus' command is new to you, and if that's the case, take the matter to the Lord when we pray, ask for his wisdom, Participate in communion, but address it with the individual this week, even this afternoon. It's that important to God. And I remind you each Lord's Day that when we talk about these interpersonal relationships, that includes between spouses as well. Another matter about which the Lord has commanded us is the issue of baptism. The Bible is clear that those who know Christ as Savior are to follow him in obedience in baptism. That is, being immersed in water to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, if you were just struggling with what baptism is or you haven't had occasion to look into it, then if you have trusted Christ as Savior, we urge you to participate with us today. But you need to make it a point to see me about baptism. If you have looked into it, you're just refusing, then that's a sin that needs to be confessed. But you can do that this morning and then follow up by getting with me And then we can go from there. So who is it that should participate? It's those who know Christ as Savior and who have confessed known sin in their lives. 
So then what about children? The requirements are the same for children. They need to know Christ as Savior and be willing to be baptized. And there's no prescribed age for either communion or baptism in the Bible. So we leave it to parents to decide if their children should participate. And we're going to receive now, at this point in our service, our weekly offerings. So guys, if you'll come forward. We're going to do this now so we can devote the remainder of our time to the observance of the Lord's table. Now, on Ordinance Sunday, we pass the hat twice. We do it at the beginning. This is our regular offering that we all participate in every week. And then at the end of our service, we're going to have what we call uh, our benevolence offering. And I'll explain what that is at the end. If you're a guest, do not feel obligated to give to either of these offerings that we'll receive today. All right, we're going to pray now and perhaps take this opportunity to confess any known sin to the Lord. Let's bow together. God the Father, we thank you for sending God the Son, Jesus, to die for our sin. Because of his offering of himself for us, we delight to offer ourselves to you in gratitude. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of being your children and being able to set aside this time to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. Lord, we readily confess that we are sinners in general and that we each struggle with certain sins in particular. We pray that you'll be pleased as we remember with profoundly thankful hearts the death of Jesus on our behalf and that we'll be motivated to recommit ourselves to the service of the one who alone is worthy. We ask you to accept these gifts as a sacrifice of worship. And we ask you to help us to use these funds wisely as a means to spread your fame. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Well, in our time together this morning as we look at the ordinances and in particular observe the Lord's table, I want to take the time to explain what the ordinances are throughout our service today. And the first point I'd like to bring to your attention is that the ordinances are for the church. Now, in order to understand that, we first need to make sure we each understand what we mean by the church. What is the church? Many of us think of the building when we think of the church. So we say, I'll meet you at the church, which means the church then is the building. The Bible teaches that the church is God's people. But it's more than that. It's more than just where two or three are gathered together. The verse in the Bible that says that, and there is a verse that says that, that where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them, Jesus said. But in context, it's not giving a definition of the church. So we'll need more than that to determine what the church is. We begin to get an idea of what the church is when we remember that the Bible describes the church as Christ's body. The Bible says Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And then again in Colossians 1, he is the head of the body, the church. So to be part of the church, his body, means that one must be connected to the head. That is Christ. So one reason that we say that the ordinances are for the church is because they are for those who are united to Christ's body. They're united to Christ. We don't bring ourselves into union with Christ. The Bible teaches that we were all outside of Christ at one time before he in his mercy and grace drew us to himself. And so the Bible says we were all dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we were outside of Christ, but then God intervened. And that same chapter in Ephesians 2 says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive, notice, with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions and raised us up with Christ. So notice, we have been raised with Christ. The Bible uses that same language elsewhere. And so I've asked Brother Bill Cochran to read for us from Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we are with Christ and we are in Christ. And that's what makes us then part of his body. The Bible speaks of us being in Christ and in turn our being in him, as does this next song now that we're going to sing, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. Let's stand together as we sing. Jesus. 
Jesus, my Redeemer, there is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I
So the ordinances are for the church, which is a group of sinners who have been saved by grace and thereby united to Christ. And the church is comprised of those who are brought into Christ's community. We've seen that it's by grace that people are united to Christ. And that grace is made real to us when God the Holy Spirit moved upon us at a point in time and changed us from the inside out. I've asked Brother Brahim Safa to read for us of that from Titus chapter 3. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through, the, through Jesus Christ our Savior. The people in whom the Holy Spirit does this work become part of the universal body of Christ, who are to be gathered, the Bible teaches, in what are sometimes called New Covenant communities. Local churches like this one are New Covenant communities. Now, when we know what the New Covenant is, we'll see what it is uh, to be in a New Covenant community and what that has to do with the ordinances. In the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, God made several covenants with his chosen people, the Jews, and the nation he formed for them, Israel. There was the covenant with Noah and Abraham and David, all of which made promises that God, of course, will keep. But the covenant that regulated the life of the nation was the one that was made with Moses through the law that went with that covenant. But the problem with the Mosaic Covenant is that it did not give the ability to perform what it required. But God promised another covenant in the future. And everyone who is part of it would have the ability to carry out what that covenant entailed. So through the prophet Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the Mosaic Covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see how very different this is than the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is this external law. Here it is. Keep it. And in this new covenant now, you are given a new heart. You are given a spirit. Every person who's part of this covenant now will have this spirit, giving the ability to actually carry out the laws that God gives. The Holy Spirit that brings us into the body of Christ also makes us part of this new covenant. Jesus spoke of the new covenant when he instituted the Lord's table, communion. 
And he said on the night before he died, according to the Gospel of Luke, after the supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, every covenant had a sign that accompanied it. And one of the signs of the new covenant is what we're going to be doing today, observing communion. The other sign is that of baptism, because it provides initiation into the new covenant community of the church. Going back to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, you may recall that John the Baptist was preaching the need to repent and be baptized. This was the new covenant message of repent, believe, and then be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins that you receive when you do repent and believe. It was not enough to have the old sign of circumcision from the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. There had to be a heart change, a repentant spirit. Jesus inaugurates the new covenant by his death, his burial, and his resurrection And all of that is symbolized in baptism. That's why immersion is the mode, the biblical mode of baptism, because it symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection. And the Bible says that that's what baptism symbolizes in Romans chapter 6. I've asked Brother Greg Mendek to read for us. Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may we too may live a new life. For if we have been unified with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. So baptism is a, a beautiful symbol of our connection to Jesus' death, the work that brought about the beginning of the new covenant. And it symbolizes our death to self and our now being made alive to Christ, or in other words, the rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit that Brahim read earlier. And baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. And all of these symbols are the direct spiritual fruit that was predicted in passages in the Old Testament like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. All of these are the spiritual fruit that would accompany the new covenant. So in a very real sense, baptism is the sign that we are part of God's new covenant. Now, all of the spiritual realities that underlie that happen before we're baptized. But baptism is the act that brings us into the new covenant community of the local church. Baptism is the sign that brings us into membership into the new covenant community that is the local church and communion provides ongoing participation in that new covenant. Unlike baptism, which is only to be done one time, communion is commanded to be done perpetually until Christ returns. So it becomes an ongoing sign of the new covenant. As the church takes communion together, baptized believers are symbolically proclaiming their unity with Christ and with one another. And the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've asked Brother Jerry Bobbitt to read for us. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the, in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We, who are many, are one body. 
for we shall share the one loaf. We have an old hymn that speaks of that unity that we have as God's church and the participation that we have together, including in the observance of communion, the church's one foundation. Let's stand together as we sing.
The ordinances are for the church and the ordinances are from the gospel. That is, we participate in them because of the gospel. One potential danger of emphasizing the ordinances like we do because the Bible does is that we can erroneously come to believe that baptism saves us and that participation in communion keeps us saved. But as vital as the ordinances of baptism and communion are, it is only the power of God through the message of the gospel that transforms our lives and preserves our lives. Every time we have a baptism, at the beginning, Pastor Larry takes time to explain that baptism is not part of the gospel and that it does not make one a Christian. Unfortunately, there are many denominations that teach that baptism is required for salvation. Some of those sprinkle infants and call it baptism, but sprinkling is not baptism, as baptism, the very word, means immersion. And that's the only way that people were baptized in the Bible. But even some churches that baptize in the biblical mode of immersion teach that it's part of salvation. These are called churches of Christ or Christian churches. And it's a denomination, even though they claim to be non-denominational. The weird thing is they don't tell people straight up that that's what they believe. And I know this because some of you are refugees who have come to our church from some of those, and though you've spent years there, it was only later that you discovered what the church believed about baptism's connection to salvation. I had an email exchange with a pastor of one of those churches a couple of years ago. He was reluctant to admit that the church believes that baptism is part of salvation. So he said in one of our final exchanges, I'm quoting now, it would be wrong to say baptism is required for salvation. So far, so good. It would be wrong to say baptism is required for salvation. Here's the next line. It would be wrong to say baptism is not required for salvation. One line that says it would be wrong to say baptism is required. The next line says it would be wrong to say baptism is not required. We then had a discussion about what a contradiction is. (laughs) But he couldn't or wouldn't admit that what he said was a classic example of a contradiction. So let me say what that pastor cannot say because of what he believes. Read my lips. Baptism is not required for salvation. It's not part of the gospel. But it does picture the gospel, the Bible teaches. The gospel is effective in the life of an individual by the will and forgiveness of God the Father, through the cross work of God the Son, by the power of God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said we're to baptize into the name of the triunity, the trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Romans 6 that was read earlier reminds us of the beautiful picture that baptism presents of our union with Christ, united in his death and his burial and his resurrection. It also pictures the new spiritual life we're given in the gospel, that our sins are washed away and that we're forgiven as water represents cleaning and purity. So baptism pictures the gospel for us and communion illustrates the gospel. 
The Bible says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the participation of the Lord's table, there is a a picture, an illustration of the Lord's death. And we're to proclaim that in this observance until he comes. In the Lord's Supper, you have a vivid testimony of the Lord Jesus' cross work with the bread illustrating his broken body, the cup illustrating his blood poured out for us. But as we partake of the Lord's table, we remember what 1 Corinthians 10 says that Brother Jerry read earlier, that there's an intimate union with Christ just as there is with one another. So when we partake of this, it's a meal, as it were, that we do because of him and with each other. So we're now going to sing of the gospel realities that we see in baptism and the Lord's table with a song that says, For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Let's stand together as we sing.
Jesus has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raise with him to The ordinances are for the church, they are derived from the gospel, and the ordinances are for believers. Now, we've already shown that the ordinances are for those who are part of God's church, his new covenant community. And it's only believers in Christ who can claim that, so this may seem redundant now to say that these are for believers. But I'm emphasizing here that it's for those who have been saved by faith, that is, through belief. So when I say it's for believers, I'm saying it's for those who are united to Christ by virtue of having believed in who he is and what he has done. It's for those who believe in Christ, who he is and what he's done. When we say believe, that's the same word in your New Testament in Greek, in which it was originally written as faith. So faith and belief are the same thing. It's those who are saved by belief in who Christ is and what he has done. Our salvation comes because of Christ, but through faith, through believing, the Bible tells us. In Ephesians chapter 2, I've asked Brother Ron Carrier to read for us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what we do in the ordinances and the observance of the Lord's table is for those who have not worked for it, not done something for it, but rather believed in the work of someone else, namely Jesus Christ. These ordinances and our participation in them are works that demonstrate our belief. So we participate in them as those who have believed, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. They are evidences that we believe. And so they can only be participated in by believers. Baptism is believers' baptism. That is, baptism is to be performed only on those who believe. It's the reason the Bible does not teach infant baptism. It's the reason we can't and don't perform that. It's 
It's an act for those who believe. Believer's baptism. Baptism is believer's baptism. And communion is for baptized believers. And so that's why I emphasize, every time we do the Lord's table, I emphasize then that if you're refusing to be baptized, then you're failing to do something that God directly says is an evidence of the fact that you are a believer. So they are distinct from, though, what saves us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Now, I mentioned that lots of churches are confused about this and teach falsely about the relationship between baptism and salvation in particular. From the blog of this church pastored by the guy I mentioned earlier, here's a quote. When the message of the risen Christ was first preached, there was no distinction between baptism and faith. No distinction between baptism and faith. Friends, to make baptism part of faith or to make faith a work hopelessly confuses the important distinction the Bible makes between faith and and works. Now, sometimes people get confused because faith, believing, is something you do. And so if work is simply defined as what you do, then even faith is a work. But the Bible distinguishes clearly between the two. As Brother Ron just read, we've been saved through faith. And it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's very clear in that passage that Brother Ron just read, but also elsewhere in the Bible as well. Romans chapter 4 says this, To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes, notice, has faith, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his belief, is credited as righteousness. You see the distinction that's being made there. Between work and between believing, between faith, and those should not be confused. And to say that there was no distinction between baptism and faith is to hopelessly confuse things. In James chapter 2, I will show you my faith by my works. Notice they're not the same thing. So yes, believing is something you do, but it's not a work you perform. Faith or belief and works are different because with work you perform and you act. That's what we do in baptism. It's a work. It's a good work. It's a godly work. Make no mistake, it's a work. In fact, the Greek word that's translated work is erge. We get our English word ergonomic from it, which means to make your work, your effort, easier, more efficient. There has always been a distinction between baptism and faith, contrary to what that church's blog says. Since baptism is a work and faith and works are juxtaposed throughout Scripture. Now we have one final song before we partake of the Lord's table. That speaks of the truth that it is the work of Christ alone on which our faith rests. Let's stand together now as we sing.
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone. Savior's love through the storm. He is the Lord, Lord of all. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. My anchor holds, my anchor holds, my anchor holds within the veil, Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak makes wrong, in the Savior's We have some additional items before the conclusion of our service. I want to go through some announcements, some things that are coming up, but also there's that second offering that I warned you about at the beginning that we take on Ordinance Sunday. So as soon as the guys are able to come up, we will receive that offering. And if you will take a look at your program, let me highlight some things that are coming up in the life of our church. 
One is, ladies, tomorrow night is the next heart-to-heart session. And you see listed there that the topic for tomorrow night is discernment. So Kim is going to be doing some teaching on what the Bible says about the topic of discernment to start you off. And then you'll break up into your groups to discuss that. It's a great time to get to know ladies in the church. And since it's not a series, since each time they meet, there's a different topic that's being highlighted. Then having missed the week before, or if you can't come the week, the next, uh, the next time, none of that will affect it. So when you're able to come, then please do that. I would encourage you, ladies, if you can make it to do that. Uh, guys, then if you have children, be willing to watch the children so that uh, mom can attend that. And then on Wednesdays, we have our midweek program. And you see at the bottom of the right panel all the things that we have for midweek. This Friday, guys, is the next men's fraternity session. And then for everybody on Saturday is the family ice skating. That's going to be at 2 o'clock at the Brownstown Sports Center. And it's uh, free for the skating. But if you need to rent skates, those are are $3. And then notice the Easter events that are coming up. We're going to be giving Easter baskets to help needy families. A few inside our church, but 15 that are outside of our church. Names given to us by the Trenton High School. There's a display board out in the lobby And there are items uh, listed on slips of paper. You can take one or more of those slips of paper and then over the next few weeks bring that item in uh, for uh, for the food baskets. We also need candy for the Easter egg hunt that's going to take place on the 11th. That's the day before Easter. And we need candy that can fit into plastic uh, Easter eggs. And we need a lot of it. And there's a receptacle for that out in the lobby. So uh, please help with that if you can. And then note that there's a spring cleanup day uh, on April the 4th. We'll be giving you some uh, details about that in the uh, in the weeks ahead. All right, guys, if you'll come forward, we're going to receive this offering that is a benevolence offering. The funds that we receive through this offering go into a benevolence fund that's overseen by our, our deacons so that as needs come up from time to time in the life of our church, we have these funds available to tap into in order to meet that. And we do throughout the year. We have things that come up, and so we've been able to use these funds to good effect for folks in our church. So what you give toward this uh, does go uh, for a good cause, and so may the Lord bless you as you do that. Let's stand now for our closing song. Thank you, guys. Sing Hallelujah, what a Savior together, a cappella. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Scoffing rude In my place condemned he stood Sealed my pardon with his blood Hallelujah, what a Savior Guilty, vile, and hell Spotless Lamb of God was He, full atonement can it be, hallelujah. 
What a Savior! Lifted up was He to die. It is finished. Was His cry? Now in heaven exalted high. Song will sing, Hallelujah. 